When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Listening to Strange Familiars, true stories of the paranormal, cryptids, hauntings, the occult, mythology, UFOs, folklore, weird and forgotten history. Please make sure to like and subscribe to Strange Familiars on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you are listening. Please share the Strange Familiars page and episodes on Facebook and other social media. If you have experienced something strange, or if you know a story you would like us to cover, email strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. And of course, strangefamiliars.com. Happy holidays, everybody. If you're struck by the spirit of giving this season, consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. Our patrons really make the show happen all year round, so thank you very much. We've got a new Strange Familiars t-shirt design at TeePublic. It's a Mothman painting I did recently. You can either go to tpublic.com, that's T-E-E, public, all one word, and search Strange Familiars, or see the show notes for the link. We've also got some Bigfoot and Stone Breath designs up there if you're interested. So this episode we're going to be talking about Christmas folklore. I've always loved the sort of darker side of Christmas, all its connections with ghosts and the supernatural and the old religions. Christmas folk traditions are strong in America, particularly in the rural regions, and often harken back to pre-Christian winter celebrations. We'll be talking with Jerry Milnes about some Christmas folk traditions from West Virginia and Pennsylvania a little bit later, but I wanted to relate some traditions I've found. I have two local favorites, and these aren't as old as some of the others we'll be talking about, but I really love them. Sometimes I go to both in one night. The first is the factory steam whistle in York City. 
This is said to be the loudest acoustic instrument in the world. At midnight on Christmas Eve, they play Christmas songs. It's so loud and so eerie sounding from the surrounding towns, you can often hear it kind of echoing across the hills in the quietness of Christmas Eve. Up close, it's impressively loud, so bring earplugs if you go. Another local tradition I've grown to love are the carolers in Glenrock, Pennsylvania, where I used to live. Starting at midnight on Christmas Eve, the carolers make their way through Glenrock. They sing until dawn. They're often accompanied by brass instruments performing these multi-part harmonies. It's a really wonderful tradition. It feels like it comes from some other time, some Victorian era or something. I really enjoy it. And here's some other Christmas lore I've collected. It was said that certain days of the week were lucky or unlucky for Christmas. If Christmas falls on a Sunday, that's the luckiest day. And it will ensure an easy winter and a summer that will be fair and dry. If a child is born on a Christmas Sunday, it's said he would become a great lord. If Christmas was to fall on a Saturday, winter was to be dreaded. Fruit and corn were to fail in the coming year and old people would die by the score. Children born on a Christmas Saturday, it was said, would die within a half a year of their birth. It was said that the cause of their death would be by the hands of the fey folk. A white Christmas was said to forecast a green Easter, while the reverse was also true. A green Christmas meant a white Easter. To have good luck in the coming year, tie a head of cabbage to the ceiling and stick nails into it. For better luck, eat sauerkraut on Christmas, and if you share it with your pigs, they'll have a lucky year as well. It was said that if you bathe between Christmas and New Year's Day, you would remain clean for the whole year. I think that one's going to apply to most people. If you hang a wishbone over your door between Christmas and New Year's, the first person to pass through the door will be your prospective lover. Christmas Eve is the time oracles and divination are said to work best, especially at midnight. At the stroke of midnight on Christmas Eve, cows are said to open their mouth and speak human words. While deer are said to do the same, praying in human tongue. But if any human hears their prayers, they will be struck blind. Go to a crossroads between 11 and midnight on Christmas Eve, and you will be told what will concern you the most in the coming year. Walk into the middle of a field of winter wheat on Christmas Eve, and you will hear what will happen in your town the following year. If a dog howls on Christmas Eve, it will go mad within the year. However, if you feed a dog silver filings on buttered bread on Christmas Eve, it would never become mad or rabid. If someone's projected shadow is headless on Christmas Eve, they will die within a year. A baby born at the time of the Christmas sermon will be able to talk to the spirits. To find witches, burn elderwood in the fireplace on Christmas Eve or elder leaves on Christmas Day. It is unlucky to carry anything out of the house on Christmas Day before something has first been brought in. A stone placed in the crotch of a fruit tree will make it bear much fruit the next season. If a maiden brews witch hazel tea and drinks it at midnight on Christmas Eve, she will dream of her future husband. On Christmas Eve, animals have the gift of human speech. Children born on Christmas can understand animal speech. It is said they would either be thieves or lawyers or be gifted with second sight. On Christmas afternoon, light and carry a pinewood torch through the fields to ensure a bountiful harvest the following year. To triple your fruit, baptize the tree in the farthest corner of the orchard with cider on Christmas Day. To keep bad spirits out of your fruit trees, 
on Christmas Day, fire a gun into the branches, tie a rock to a limb, beat the fruit trees with a hardwood stick, or tie bunches of straw around the trunk. To see your future, cut a hole in the ice on a creek on Christmas Day and stare through the hole into the water. Or drop a wedding ring into a glass of water on Christmas Day and then gaze into the water. In a dimly lit room, stare into the mirror on Christmas night and the face of your true love will appear over your shoulder. A dream of cats on Christmas foretells of a bad illness coming. Save breadcrumbs from Christmas dinner for three years and they will cure any sickness. Green decorations on Christmas attract wood elves who will guard you for the following year. Water drawn from a well at the exact turn of midnight will turn to gold. If you drink it, everything you eat the following year will taste good. At midnight on Christmas Eve, the bells of churches sunken beneath the waters all ring at once and can be heard from great distances.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Jerry Millens is an author, filmmaker, and musician from West Virginia. Jerry has collected a lot of really interesting Christmas folklore, which is in his various books and films. It was a real treat for me to talk with him, as I've enjoyed his books, films, and music for years. So we're talking with Jerry Milnes, and Jerry's written several books on folklore, different kinds of uh, folklore. How many books have you written, Jerry? I think I've written four books. So I have Play the Fiddle, mm-hmm. and I know you did the Signs, Cures, and Witchery. What are your other books? I published a book of children's folklore a long time ago called Granny Wee or Dog Bite. Uh, just things I collected, and I published a uh, a book of folklore for, for the Augusta Heritage Center. And you work closely with Augusta Heritage, don't you? Well, uh, I'm retired now, but I work at the Augusta Heritage Center for 25 years now. And how many documentary films have you made? I think about 16. Wow. So some of those are available. I know the Science Cures and Witchery is available. Unfortunately, the Fiddle, Snakes, and Dog Days is videotape only. Yeah, that was uh, that was a real early one, and it was VHS, uh, and never quite got transferred. Anyway, a lot of those films are available through the Augusta Heritage Center, uh, and there were some films I did contracted with other historical societies and things like that around West Virginia. What got you interested in in folklore? Did uh, folk music come first, or did they go hand in hand, or or how did uh, how did you get into it? Yeah, from a young age, I got into to traditional music. I had an older brother who played fiddle and guitar, and I've probably got interested in... I played the banjo since I was like a little kid, but then I got interested in the fiddle when I was about 20 years old, and that took me to West Virginia from Pennsylvania, where I was living, where I grew up. I started traveling to festivals back in the late 60s and early 70s uh, in North Carolina and West Virginia. 
And uh, in 75, there was a big back to the land movement going on. And uh, I got married and my wife and I packed up a pickup truck and headed to West Virginia and found a little remote mountain farm. Back then you could buy them for, I would, we bought a 75 acre farm for $100 an acre. Nice. <laughs> and it just happened to be in an area where there was lots of old time music going on. And so with my interest in music, it sort of, I got interested in, in the context of the music and sort of the, the people who played it. And that led to interest in all kinds of folkways and folklore and uh, started writing about it and kept collecting music through the, the whole period. And eventually uh, I was offered a job at the Augusta Heritage Center as a folk arts coordinator. And it was kind of my dream job. I was collecting music and producing traditional music and got into filmmaking. So that's kind of how my interest spread. And I, you know, documenting my interest kind of became my occupation. I'm very, very happy for people like you who've done the work. I'm trying to continue in my own way, not just with the podcast, but with uh, I've got a couple books out. I'm always digging, always digging for folklore and uh, trying to get old stories and so forth. But we have you here tonight to talk about some Christmas folklore. And I've noticed that at least in uh, a couple of the books I have of yours, you, you, you kind of always seem to mention some Christmas folklore. Are, are you particularly fond or interested in Christmas or is it just something you noted? Well, I think it came up through my interest in music. You know, I started learning tunes like Old Christmas Morning. And I remember uh, living on that remote farm that I mentioned. Uh, I had an old neighbor who one day we were talking about something or other, and I guess Christmas came up and he said, you know, my people always didn't use this new Christmas. They always used that old Christmas. And, you know, I asked him, well, what, what are you talking about? What's old Christmas? And I knew the tune, but I never had an explanation for what it was. So it, it turns out old Christmas was kept by old people. And I should go back and explain that. In 1582, the Gregorian calendar was announced by Pope Gregory, and it became the standard of most of the European countries. It replaced the older Julian calendar. But the British uh, countries, the British Isles and their colonies did not accept it because they were basically Protestant, and this was coming from Pope Gregory, so they resisted the change, even though the Gregorian calendar was much more accurate than the old Julian calendar. The British crown did not accept the Gregorian calendar until 1752. And at that time, the difference in the date was 11 days between what would be the date of the Julian calendar and the date, same date in the Gregorian calendar. So in 1752, they made the switch and what they did was in September of that year, they just dropped 11 days. Just 11 days just disappeared. And they got hooked up with the Gregorian calendar, which 
actually sync their calendar with the, most of the rest of the Western world. But in the backcountry places like mountains of West Virginia, people kind of wondered, well, if we were, we've been selling, celebrating Christmas on December 25th, and now you're changing, you're dropping 11 days from, the, from that. So instead of celebrating it on December 25th uh, as recognized in the Gregorian calendar, we're going to keep the old date, which then was January 5th. So you had uh, several generations of people who were celebrating Christmas on January 5th, and they got to call it old Christmas. Not It wasn't this new Christmas. Right. And that lasted for uh, several generations, and I know several old people who remember it. So, I've seen the date for old Christmas given anywhere from the 5th to the 8th, depending on who was given the date. Yeah. So every so many years, it gets even wider apart. Back in 1752, it was coincided with January 5th. And, you know, I forget how many, every so many years it gets a little farther apart. So I think now, yeah, we are up to January 8th. Oh, okay. All right. Okay, because the difference in the calendars. And and the calendar will keep getting, that date will keep getting. So like in the Orthodox Church, Orthodox churches, uh, they still celebrate Christmas on, you know, the January 8th date or whatever it is now. Mm-hmm. It's gotten that far away from December 25th. So old Christmas, the tune and, and the whole tradition kind of all, you know, made sense now that I, you know, I hear people talking about old Christmas and now I know what they're talking about. It all goes back to that big mixing of the calendars back in 1752. Yes. And yeah, it was accepted pretty much back then. You can imagine you couldn't get word from <laughs> anywhere to anywhere, especially to the, the backwoods of West Virginia, uh, very quickly. And people were being told in the mountains that they have to drop 11 days off their calendar, and it just probably didn't make a whole lot of sense to them. So there was there was rejection of, of that for a while. And, it lasted on, no, no one does it anymore, I'm sure, but like I say, I still knew people who, who remembered it. There was other things that went on. There was a lot of resistance to it, even in Britain, where they, they would say, that, well, they'll, they'll watch for certain signs to see whether the true date is you know, January 5th or December 25th, and they'd watch for signs in the natural world, and uh, they thought that you know, this would reveal the true date, and there was all kinds of things that went on. And there was lots of, even in this country, there was you know, um, these folkloric accounts of all the animals dropping to their knees on the, the stroke of midnight on January 5th. And people realized that then that, that proved the old date was a great date. Right, right. And there's a lot of folklore involved with it. Yeah, I love those. There's some wonderful stories about, I, I think I tracked one down where it said the the hens started crowing like roosters and the pigs were barking like dogs or something like that. It was very similar to that. And uh, mm-hmm. that marked the date or, or told them one way or another that they, they knew it. Yeah. There's an old uh, banjo player. Maybe you've heard of her name, Sylvia O'Brien from uh, Clay County. And she told me that on the night of old Christmas, all the animals in the barn would drop to the knees and start glowing, as she called it making this low, mournful sound. 
Wow. And she always wanted she always wanted to go down to the barn to see to see it, but it was always her parents never let her go. Huh. <laughs> and I've heard that from a lot of people that uh, tradition of the animals dropping to their knees and uh, speaking, as they say. I had a woman in uh, Seven Valleys here in York County who told me a story, and I'm not sure if it was associated with Christmas, but it just reminds me of that, that at some point a local pig farmer said that every pig in the, his yard stood up on the hind legs and, and started sounding off at the same time. They stood on their hind legs. That was uh, mm-hmm. an odd one, but it, it reminds me of those kind of stories. That tradition was also strong among German people. You know, a lot of this area of West Virginia where I live, it's, uh, you know, it's a pretty good mix of German and Scots-Irish. And uh, so there's a lot of German traditions mixed in there, too. Another uh, real strong one that still exists, actually, is called Belsnickwing. Yeah, I wanted to talk and, about that. You've made a lot of connections from sort of the, the Pennsylvania Dutch or Pennsylvania Germans. I guess a, a lot of folks kind of came through Pennsylvania and, and moved to West Virginia. So these traditions happen in both places. They're a little bit different. Belsnickwing kind of phased out here around the turn of the last century. If you read the newspapers, mm-hmm. you start seeing uh, people kind of talking about it, like, oh, there's a, there was only three people, you know, bell-snickling tonight or, or whatever it was. And, and then as, as they get later on into the 50s, they, you know, talk about how, you know, no one bell-snickles anymore. Uh, but it still occurs in West Virginia. Yeah, I, real rarely, ever in Pendleton County, I remember I, uh, maybe 10 years ago, I visited an old guy who was in the early January. He said, well, I had some bell snicklers here a couple nights ago. And so anyway, that was a really strong tradition over in the, the, the next county to where I live to the east is Pendleton County. And every old person in that county would tell you about bell snickling. They, they did it when they were young. I guess we should take a step back and explain to people what it was. So it comes from the name bell snickle, which was a, sort of a Santa Claus kind of figure. It's a mispronunciation of two German words. It's Pels Nicholas. It was actually meant a furry St. Nicholas. And Pels Nicholas got sort of anglicized over the years to Pels Nicholas to Bell Snickle. Mm-hmm. And I've heard variations on it. One old man told me he used to Bell Schnickel. And, you know, I've heard different pronunciations of, of it, which just goes to prove that it was real, a real folk tradition. It wasn't, it wasn't set down in print anywhere. So the pronunciation of the word even was just varied from place to place. Sure. And it became sort of a verb as people really kind of dressed up and uh, they would go from house to house. Is that the idea? Yeah. All the traditions of uh, masquerade and, and what's called informal visiting, they're all called mumming traditions. And they, they exist beginning at Halloween and go all the way through uh, you know, Lent and the Fosnock traditions and whatnot. But they're all called mumming traditions. And there's actually, uh, Belsnickling was a strong one in the German areas of West Virginia and German settled areas. But there's another tradition called Shanghai. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. There was references to it up in Pennsylvania uh, but died out long ago, and there's references to it over in the valley. The, around here, when you say the valley, you mean the Shenandoah Valley, the, the Great Valley. And there was a fellow who did a lot of research 
on those mumming traditions over in the valley. He concluded that the Shanghai tradition was a Scots-Irish tradition where bell snickling was a German thing. Now, I had an old man tell me who used to do Shanghai. It was another thing that, uh, you know, the 80, 90-year-olds that I used to know, they all remember these things. But Shanghai was a tradition where you dressed up in masquerade and it was all done on horseback and you rode farm to farm and it was sort of like the other uh, visiting mumming traditions where you were given treats and you were dressed in masquerade and people tried to guess who you were and whatnot. Uh, There's also a fiddle tune in West Virginia called Shanghai, which I've learned years ago from Burl Hammonds. And I don't know if it's related to the the Shanghai tradition or not, but both counties, Pearl Hammonds lived in Pocahontas County and two counties that surround that county, there were Shanghai traditions going on. Down in in Greenbrier County, West Virginia, there's still a Shanghai parade every New Year's Day where everybody dresses up in all sorts of, masquerade and walks down the street. Nobody knows why they do it. <laughs> Is that the parade that's in the uh, Science Cures and Witchery film? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. So there's some footage of that if, if people want to check that out. <clears throat> right. Yeah, that was really uh, interesting. I have a theory about where this word Shanghai comes from. If it is a uh, Scots-Irish tradition rather than German, and that seems to be the case, but nobody knows where the word Shanghai could have come from. It doesn't make any sense in the, you know, the old, the, the, the Shanghai sailor kind of reference. Doesn't make any sense as a, any reference to a, to the Asian city or the Chinese city. But there's two Gaelic words, Shan, which means old, and Ag, which means face. And if you put those two together, old face, Shan, Ag, that's not a proven theory, but that's a theory that I come up with where this word may have come from because the masquerading was often often in in lots of traditions the uh, you know the, it was the face of your ancestors in a lot of old folklore traditions so was the shanghai that was uh related to old Christmas as well that's when it was done shanghai was all these both Belstinkling and and Shanghai were always done right around Christmas, either just before or just after. And, and they all go back to the winter solstice. You know, it was, these are pagan things that now we think of as Christmas traditions, but they were much older than in Christmas right. and much older than, you know, the Christian religion. So, you know, they're all pagan things that happened right around the winter solstice. And, you know, there's all kinds of Christmas revels and things that, are you know related to the old the old pagan celebrations and just uh, things to do at that time of year to get rid of the the old darkness and start the days getting longer. That was the, the theme and most of that, that kind of thing. So there is a story. I hope I'm not putting you on the spot. There's a story in your book, Play of a Fiddle, about the carpenters and Shelvin Rock and uh, a Christmas story. Can, mm-hmm. can, you, can you relate that? Well, Ernie Carpenter uh, used to tell me these stories. The the Carpenters were really early settlers in Central West Virginia, and they settled on Elk River back in around the early 1780s, and they had 
there was Indian troubles, and uh, there was two brothers, and the remnants after an Indian attack went about uh, about three miles from where their cabin was, and went to this place now called Shelvin Rock. In fact, I was there about a month ago. I just went up there to see it. Aaron Carpenter used to take me up to this place in a real remote area. But anyway, they lived under this rock for uh, apparently a couple of years. It's like a, a large overhanging rock. It's, I think it's a really large room. And they walled it up with logs and uh, made it comfortable and actually lived in there. Ernie said that Sally Carpenter was born while the family was living under this rock. And in fact, some of the old carpenters who lived near there told me they called it Sally's Rock. Ernie always calls it Shelvin Rock. And the fiddle tune is called Shelvin Rock. But anyway, while they were living under there, and this, after this baby was born, according to Ernie, they decided to give him a Christmas tree or have a Christmas tree out from the front of this sort of cave or rock that they lived under. And they went up in the top of this tree and tied a cross up there, and they lit up this burning cross in the top of this tree, and that was supposed to be Sally's Christmas tree. Well, it's interesting because the whole Christmas tree tradition that we know didn't really start until the middle of the 19th century. We're talking about the late 18th century here. So there is an old Celtic tradition of burning a cross in the top of a tree like that, and that's the only reason I could come up with that they would do such a thing. So it's kind of a little mystery there as to why why they did it. Old Sylvia O'Brien, who I mentioned a little bit ago, who's also related to these carpenters, she said that the baby uh, that was born under the rock never cried until they took it out into the sunlight, which, uh, according to her, was because there were these Indians in the area and they were hiding out from Indians and the, and the baby somehow <laughs> knew not to make a loud noise and attract uh, any attention. So it's a nice little piece of folklore. I doubt if a baby said that sixth sense at that the age of a couple of days or not, but <laughs> that was a story that she told. It's incredible these stories get passed down in the, these families for hundreds of years like that. Mm-hmm. I love it. I, I, I just love stuff like that. Anything else, Dad, regarding Christmas? Well, one thing that happens, a lot of these traditions whereby there's just kind of informal visiting going on. It's not anything formalized. And the same thing would have happened in Philadelphia. We have the Mummers Parade there these these days. Well, originally that was, I'm sure, just a real unorganized folk tradition of people getting dressed up in masquerade and going from house to house. In fact, uh, there's a lot of good books have been written about uh, you know the history of that mm-hmm. and it turns out it was that kind of a tradition at first and eventually it became a more formalized parade that was an organized event and that kind of same same thing happened with the Shanghai tradition whereby it was a real unorganized folk tradition of going house to house on horseback and eventually, down in Lewisburg, they decided to formalize it and make it into a, you know, a community event. And so it's a parade, and that seems to exist. I've even heard of of small towns here and there that have organized Halloween parades instead of having kids going from house to house trick or treating like they do. 
Another thing that it's not related to Christmas, but it's another one of these mumming traditions that we have right here in the county I live in. Way up in the mountains, there's a little Swiss community, and they still celebrate Fasnacht. Oh, yeah. Fasnacht, Fasnacht is uh, something that also was, I'm sure, celebrated in the German areas of Pennsylvania. Yes, we, we still, um, Fasnacht Day is huge here. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it, it, I don't know if you know what the words mean. It just means fast tonight. And, and it was the, the night of of kicking up your heels and eating all the donuts and things fried in deep fat before you started the Lenten fast, which started on the next day. Getting rid of all the lard and, and, and stuff. So they made the, the what they call false knocks, which are, you know, uh, kind of a donut. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this little town way up in the mountains here in Randolph County, they, they all, uh, all the people dress up in the wildest stuff you can't imagine, the masks they make and, and stuff. And they go down to the, the dance hall. There's a little dance hall in this town. They have a big dance that night. And at the end of the night, they burn old man Winter, who's hanging in the in the dance hall all night. And after the last dance, they take him outside and have a bonfire and burn him up to get rid of him, which was another Swiss tradition, I guess. Wow. Oh, that's but, awesome. Uh, they do it every year up there. It's a it's a real great event. And the the, music, the dancing and music up there has been going on forever. And they still have a lot of square dancing goes on up there these mumming traditions and, and they all go back to, uh, you know, even the word, you know, this whole Fosnock tradition was the night before Lent and Lent comes from the word lengthen. And it was before it was a Christian thing. It was a celebration of the lengthening of the days. So this was just another pagan thing that got Christianized. And now it's uh, the night before Lent, but originally it was, celebration of the days getting longer so and pretty much that's what all these traditions whether they're around christmas time or or the halloween traditions or if you go all the way up into spring and the fosnop traditions that's they were all had to do with the weather they all had to do with changing the season getting rid of the dark winter and bringing on the spring and whatever they could do to help that along is what the traditions were all about i think we don't feel the impact of the seasons the way we used to when everyone was farming or, or hunting or, yeah. or you really felt the impact of the seasons. And I can see where marketing like that would become these huge festivals or, or these, uh, you I know, have to say, you know, yeah. I, I lived on a real remote farm. It was way off the grid. And when you live like that, you really, the daylight is really precious. You know, you get up in time to take advantage of it and uh, living like that, you know, even in that, with all the, you know, the, we did have a lot of modern conveniences compared to what people had in prehistory. But even then, you really noticed the weather and appreciated the weather much more than you do in in modern life. Oh yeah. Well, where's the best place for people to get your books? Is it? Uh, I know they're on Amazon, but is it better to go through uh, Augusta Heritage, or, or what's the best place for it? My books, yeah, I just go to Amazon or. Or, or wherever um and uh for any of the films you go to the augusta heritage center or they i produced a lot of cds of west virginia traditional music and they're all at the augusta store do i have a cd of dulcimer music you did yeah okay probably. yeah that was a kind of a discovery i made when i started researching uh, traditional music it was a 
a lot of tr- old traditional dulcimer players in this one area down where I used to live, and uh, it was kind of surprising to me because I'd never met old-time people playing dulcimers, and there was a whole bunch of them around around there. So I ended up actually I made a, a film about some of the ones too, who were real traditional players. You know, they didn't come by it through the folk revival or anything like that. It was just family traditions. I will have to check that out because I absolutely love dulcimer. It's underrated folk instrument, I think. It's, and mm-hmm. really has its roots in the, in the Middle Ages as a true kind of medieval instrument that somehow survived. Uh, I was reading somewhere, they said they think it probably because of Appalachia, really. I think that the, the dulcimer as we know it had kind of died out in Europe and it was sort of rediscovered in, in Appalachia. Yeah, they, well, it's a German instrument, you know. It was modified some. Uh, if you go up in the old museums up near you in, in eastern Pennsylvania, if you go to the Mercer Museum, you can see the old German versions of the Appalachian dulcimers. They were they looked a little different, but they're unmistakably the same instrument. And the way you can tell is that fret system, you know, it's a diatonic fret system rather than a chromatic system. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of claims that the dulcimer came from England and all this stuff. And there's never been an instrument, a folk instrument in the British Isles that had a diatonic fret system like the dulcimer has. So, and the old, uh, a lot of the old, uh, older German players used a bow when they played it. And I've met old people in West Virginia who remembered, you know, that their fathers used a bow to play the dulcimer. Oh, wow. That kind of thing. That's awesome. I'm going to put a link to Augusta Heritage and to your books on Amazon for everybody to see. Thank you so much, Jerry, for coming on. This has been a real treat for me. Thanks for all the work you've done collecting this stuff. This stuff is a treasure for me, and I absolutely love it. It's just thrilling for me that these stories exist and that folks like you collected them, you know, kind of save for it for future generations. It's awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed talking about it. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts. Music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more.
Savior's to be born in a manger, yet a king was he. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.